Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, newly inducted National Soccer Hall of Fame member Dr. Joe Macknick joins me to talk about his remarkable soccer journey, including being traded in the 1960s from the New York Ukrainians to the Newark Ukrainians, who changed the I in his name to a Y to make him sound more Ukrainian. Guys would come up to me and speak to me in Ukrainian. I had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> Most of the time I figured out they were asking me what the score was, you know, and then I learned the numbers and the Ukrainian numbers and was able to, you know, and sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is one of the true Renaissance figures in the history of American soccer. Dr. Joe Macknick is currently the soccer rules analyst for Fox Sports, but his past goes all the way back to being an All-American goalkeeper at Long Island University, a coach who led LIU at age 23 to the 1966 NCAA title game, who coached ice hockey and men's and women's soccer at the University of New Haven, who was an assistant coach on the U.S. Men's 1990 World Cup team, a referee who worked the 1988 NCAA title game, a FIFA match commissioner, a director of officials for three U.S. pro leagues, and the creator of the popular number one soccer camps. He was recently inducted as a builder into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Dr. Joe Macknett, congratulations and thanks for joining me. Wow, Grant, holy smokes. I mean, that's a lot of history there, and I don't know how you fit it all in, but I guess 60 years, uh, you can manage the time, and I appreciate your... Uh doing your homework and your research, because that's some of the things I've even forgotten about. <laughs> but thank you. Well, I am so excited to have you on this podcast. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. I've gotten to know you, obviously, working with you for Fox Sports uh, over the last several years, which has been a, a real pleasure for me. But I want to start just by asking you, how did you get connected to soccer in the first place? That's a good story. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in New York City in a little Brooklyn neighborhood called Greenpoint, which is very popular now. And uh, there was a park, McCarran's Park. And I was a big hockey fan at the time. Uh, only lived uh, seven subway stops from the old Madison Square Garden. So, so, uh, and you could get into a hockey game for 40 cents with a geo card. And, uh, you know, I sat down in an English class uh, in my high school, Brooklyn Tech. And a uh, fellow next to me, uh, we introduced ourselves. His name was Andrew Shepardovich. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about hockey. And the Boston Bruins had uh, a Ukrainian line. They called the Yuki line. It was Busick, Stasiak, and Horvath. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew about them, and he was surprised because I followed hockey, like I said. So he said, do, do you play soccer? And I said, no. He said, well, we need a goalkeeper, and you can come <laughs> up to the gym and try out. So uh, in my, uh, let's see, second semester sophomore year, I went up to the gym and because I knew a little hockey and angle play and could make a kick save and, uh, you know, had some baseball experience growing up, uh, basketball too, uh, you know, I survived it to try out. And the first year, my junior year, I was on the JV. My senior year, I was on the varsity. Brooklyn Tech was a very, you know, one of the stronger teams in New York City. Um, and uh, I was along with another player, Ray Klavaka, who became at one time the coach of the Cosmos. He and I then became the first two recruits uh, for Long Island University's soccer program, wow. and that's how it all began. And, of course, uh, Andrew, my friend who I met in that English class, took me to his club, 
which was the New York Ukrainians, and I played for them in the juniors and later for their senior team and and uh, was the backup goalkeeper for the Open Cup uh, champions of 66. Um, and uh, that's where how it all began. I love how I can read this really long description of what you've done over the years and not mention that you won a U.S. Open Cup, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, back then, uh, the German-American League, which is now called the Cosmo League, it was, along with the American League, the premier league on the East Coast in mm -hmm. the United States, uh, blau Gachi, New York Hungarians, uh, New York Ukrainians, Greek-Americans, uh, all ethnic league playing in places like uh, Eintracht Oval, New Farmers Oval, Metropolitan Oval, um, Zuriga Oval, a lot of places that weren't even ovals, but they called them ovals, um, <laughs> uh, Schutzen Park. Uh, so, I mean, I grew up uh, learning about a culture uh, that I had no idea about that even existed. Uh, and then, um, you know, really got uh, um, entranced with it, loved every single minute of it. Uh, played first for the juniors, then the reserves, then the first team. That's how I met Walter Chiswitz, and he became a mentor and a friend. Uh, which led to so many other things. Okay. And why don't you just stop for a second and explain who Walt Chiswick was? Well, Walt Chiswick uh, came to America when he was uh, around 10 years old and lived in the Philadelphia area and uh, had a great talent for scoring goals. Uh, and uh, back in the early days when Detmar Kramer first came to do the coaching schools, uh, we were in those early coaching schools together and Kramer appointed uh, Walter to be his successor uh, when, when Kramer, after a couple years, decided to go back to Germany and coach Bayern Munich. Um, and so uh, I became like the goalkeeper coach for the coaching schools, and that led to the beginning of the goalkeeper camp. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, it's all, it's all a matter of connections. When uh, MISL started it was philadelphia office based and uh they hired walter as a consultant mm -hmm. uh, and they they needed a referee in chief walter knew knew that i knew hockey and also was refereeing mm -hmm. and that made sense with the fact that indoor soccer was played in a hockey rink mm -hmm. and, and so walter hired me to be the referee of the chief, referee in chief uh, and i refereed the uh first game Pete Rose kicked out the ball and then uh, Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> Pete Rose, the baseball player? <laughs> yeah, because because he owned the Cincinnati Kids. He was okay. part, part owner of the Cincinnati Kids. <laughs> and uh, it was Cincinnati Kids against New York Arrows, uh, Nassau Coliseum. Nice. And, and uh, then I refereed the first All-Star game in Madison Square Garden, huh. uh, which was a big thrill for me because growing up in New York City. And, and then uh, later on, Walter was still a consultant for U.S. Soccer, uh, director of coaching and they were putting together the national team. He uh, wanted me to help with the goalkeepers, and, and that's how that all began. Okay. I mean, there's so many different directions we can go here. I guess when I see that you got your LIU team to as a head coach mm -hmm. to the NCAA title game in 1966, you were 23 years old. Right. How does how did you become a, a head coach at 23 and be able to even be in a position to do that? Yeah. Well, I had played at LIU. Um, you know, I played 1962, 61, 62, and 63. Back then, freshmen couldn't play in any, any sport. You had to sit out your freshman year. And then after graduating, I became the assistant coach, graduate assistant, which is normal progress. And I started to go for my master's degree. The head coach's name was Gary Rosenthal, and he was very dynamic, charismatic uh, personality. 
and uh, a new president came to LIU and recognized Gary's uh, personality and asked him to uh, fill the vacancy of dean of students. Mm -hmm. um, and so that left an opening uh, in what was already a very, very good team. Uh, so I inherited, uh, I, I then got the head coaching job at 23, and I inherited Gary's really, really good team um, with you know players like Dove Marcus, who won the first Herman Trophy, mm -hmm. Carlo Tramontosi, who later went on to coach St. Francis mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to really special accomplishments. Uh, we had, and we went all the way uh, to the national championship game, and we lost to San Francisco with Lotha Arcienda on the mm -hmm. field playing, and uh, uh, we lost badly 5-2 uh, to two in the championship game. After beating Michigan State in the semifinal 2-2 two -two with the tiebreaker being corner kicks. What? Yep. The tiebreaker back then in the NCAA was corner kicks, and we beat them. We had seven. They had six, so we went on to the final. <laughs> As a as a rules guy, how do you feel about that tiebreaker? I didn't even know that existed at one point. Yeah, so so <laughs> it actually players players were actually backing away from shots, letting them get shots on goal, not to give a corner. So so I mean, and I remember <laughs> that all the teams stayed in the same hotel, and uh, Michigan State was on the same floor as we were, and their athletic director and the coach had a screaming argument. Uh, about how could they lose to LIU? You know, Michigan State being the athletic machine that right. uh, that it has been versus LIU, which you know wasn't doing anything since the basketball scandals of the fifties. Right. Uh, and and so they had a screaming argument. I could hear the coach saying, "Well, it's a stupid rule anyway. We should have, you know, they should have <laughs> let us play." So so uh, yeah, it was a special time, but. Got us into the final. Okay. And there's one particular thing I saw once in a story about you that I had to ask, which is you mentioned playing um, uh, in the 60s. And I noticed in one story it said you played semi-pro with the Newark Ukrainian Sitch in the American Soccer League from 1967 to 68. And that the team temporarily changed the spelling of your name to M-A-C-H-N-Y-K to make it sound as though you were Ukrainian. Not only sound like it, but look like it. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, Michael Lewis, uh, who is writing a book on the Rochester uh, Lancers. Okay. Uh, and so they were in the American League when I was playing for the Newark Ukrainians. And uh, the reason I went to Newark... Uh, to play for them was because, as I told you, I was the backup for the goalie for the New York Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. the, the Newark needed a starting goalkeeper, so I moved. <laughs> I got traded. So, so, so. Uh, but in the game program, uh, when we played Rochester up in Rochester, Michael Lewis found that program and asked me if I was the same guy. Is okay. that me? So, yeah. And I mean, people, people used to, you know, back then in the fields we played, people were standing behind the goal. There was some places no no stands whatsoever. They stood around the field, mm -hmm. on the touch line, on the goal line. You know, sure. sometimes there was a railing, sometimes not. And they were, you know, guys would come up to me and speak to me in Ukrainian. I had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> Most of the time, I figured out they were asking me what the score was. You know, and then I learned the numbers and the Ukrainian numbers, and was able to, you know. And sometimes they got it, sometimes they didn't. I mean, what I th what comes clear to me is for anyone out there who thinks there's not a rich history of soccer in America or in the Northeast or in the New York City area from before the days of the NASL, 
there was a very rich history, and it was in in many places. Is it fair to say an ethnic history? No, it was for sure ethnic, and you know, we're talking late nineteen fifties, early sixties, which is only fifteen twenty years after the war. Right. So, so there's a great immigration uh, coming, uh, and many of the Ukrainians, in fact, that I grew to know and play and really enjoy their culture, came through South America. They couldn't, huh. they couldn't even get directly uh, into the United States, wow. and some through Canada as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I mean, some of the games ended in, uh, some of the games never finished. Uh, because of the uh, carryover and the hostility, hostilities uh, from the war. Ah. Yeah, so, I mean, there were some, you know, brutal experiences that I remember, you know. Where, Any specifics? Well, I don't want to go into, but, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there was, uh, there's been blood. I've seen, you know, wow. on the field, and it comes over from the fans getting involved, and, uh. and, and uh, we, you know, Ukrainians, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000, Ukrainian people at a game on a Sunday mm. it was part of their culture, you know, mm. to go to a game on a Sunday. And uh, they were very passionate. Huh. Wow. And had long memories. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you were at University of New Haven for quite a while, right? How did that end up happening? Well, um, <laughs> I had distant relatives. Uh, uh, my father's cousins with the same name, Macknick, uh, lived in Old Lyme, Connecticut. And he used to take me there uh, in the summer to visit. And they had a farm, and I learned how to drive a car when I was 10 years old and milk a cow and all those kinds of things. Uh, so I always wanted, I said, when I, I had a family of my own, I would raise them in Connecticut. Huh. So, so uh, even though I was, had been coaching at LIU for three years, an opportunity came at the University of New Haven um, to uh, to move to Connecticut with my two young daughters at the time, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, we took that opportunity. But to do so, to get that job coaching soccer, I also had to coach hockey. Okay. So so I coached hockey for three years, and uh, you know I could barely skate. <laughs> <laughs> but I but but I um, I had a smart enough to hire a really really good assistant coach. Who kind of ran the practices and I ran the bench huh. for the for during the games and, and it, he could it worked skate. it worked out pretty well. <laughs> okay, um, and I'm trying to kind of figure out. There's so many other things chronologically. What what then happened next in your soccer story? Then the coaching schools came. In fact, it was uh, Detmar Kramer uh, was appointed by FIFA uh, after the World Cup in Mexico. He came directly to the States, and uh, hardly anybody knew about it uh, or knew of him. Uh, communications were, you know, were not th- the same. And mm-hmm. I got a call from Hubert Vogelsinger, who was uh, coaching at Yale, mm-hmm. which is in New Haven. He said, you got to do this. You got to do this. Come to this coaching school. Hmm. So we all, uh, 17 of us, went up to uh, Moses Brown School in Providence and, and uh, took this coaching school, and it was a revelation. Mm-hmm. It was uh, just, and he became like almost like a god to us. I mean, it, it, and you know, I remember it was a, there were three weeks of three one week sessions, and I did the goalkeeping uh, lesson and for my test, and Detmar obviously liked it. He said, "Can you come back week two and do it for next week's course? Mm-hmm. Come back in week three. So that's kind of how it all began. But that became a really important part of my life because then almost every weekend. I was doing a clinic either for U.S. soccer or for NSCAA, 
uh, all over the country. I mean, we traveled and did clinics. Uh, went to Maine one time and did a clinic for eleven people. So, so, so it was. That's kind of how the reputation of a goalkeeper guy uh, started. Okay. And what year did your camp start? Nineteen seventy-seven. Okay. We started the camp. Uh, um, you know, I, I had been working at everybody else's camp, yeah. and I was watching goalkeepers being abused. Um, and uh, even at Walter Chizowitz's camp, the All-American Soccer Camp at school, and I said, Walter, let me do a goalkeeper camp in conjunction with your camp. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he and Gene, they pondered the thought, uh, you know, this, what are you going to do? There's nothing you can do with goalkeepers. What are you going to do for a whole week? Uh, you know, all, all they are is put them in a goal and shoot at them. <laughs> you know, I was trying to explain, no, this is how you train them and da-da-da. So... I took the challenge of that they did and said, okay, I'm going to do it myself. And along with uh, my assistant coach, John Kowalski, at the time we started uh, number one goalkeeper camp. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, the first year we had 39 goalkeepers from 13 states. And the following year we had 240 from 39 states. Mm-hmm. And by the third year we expanded to Chicago and uh, Texas. And at one time we were doing... Uh, we added strikers a little bit later on. We're doing 3,200 kids in the summer. Wow. It was unbelievable. Who are some of the goalkeepers who've come through your camp? Oh, man. Um, the, my, well, my favorite, of course, is the late Dave Vinoli. Yeah. Dave was a camper for five summers uh, and then became a staff member and traveled with us. Uh, of course, he's passed away now. But uh, Nick Romando, Matt Reese, Joe Cannon... Uh, Kevin Hartman, John Bush, hmm. all campers. Nice. Yeah. Good group. Yeah. Um, and just how many players, I guess, total do you think have come through your camps? <laughs> I would I have no way of knowing that, but between players and um, because back then we did registrations on three-by-five cards, uh, and, and, you know, we don't have those cards anymore, but right. somewhere near close to 80,000. Really? Wow. Uh, and with if you combine staff, uh, you know, so this being our 42nd summer, uh, 85,000 individuals have been with us one in one shape or form. Okay. And we haven't even talked about your refereeing c- career yet. What, what? How did that happen? I mean, this is not something where you were just kind of doing small games. You did an NCAA title game. Yeah, well, while I was at LIU and doing uh, my graduate assistantship, I was also director of intramurals. Okay. So as director of intramurals, I, I, I wound up refereeing everything. <laughs> Basketball, volleyball, flag football, soccer. I loved refereeing. And and um, so then I moved to New Haven, and we were at a jamboree with eight college teams. Mm-hmm. And one of the referees, the name is Keith Johnson, who ran the Connecticut State Referees Association, came up to all of the coaches and said, tomorrow is the opening of the Connecticut State Soccer League season and we don't have enough refs. Hmm. Would any of you like to volunteer to referee tomorrow? And so I said, sure, I raised my hand. And, um, and that was the start of it. So I refereed that game. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but there were good teams. Hartford, uh, Hartford Portuguese, Hartford Italians, New Britain Falcons. I mean, Vasco da Gama. There was serious soccer. Mm-hmm. So I refereed without taking a fitness exam and no rule book. <laughs> and that's how it all began. And 
did you develop a style when it came to to refereeing, or is there a preferred way to go about things in your mind? I think what served me well on the field as a referee was, you know, my playing background and coaching background. Mm -hmm. So I was able to feel a player's pain when when there was an injury and and sh and say the right things and show the right amount of empathy. And from a coaching background, I I knew you know, what the expectations were of mm -hmm. a coach. And so I, I'm, I'm not saying I refereed by a different set of rules, but by a different set of uh, emotions uh, that really, really helped me. Mm -hmm. And then what really helped me too was the indoor game where you had to be so fast with your decision-making mm -hmm. because there was like a, a decision to be made almost every three seconds. And, you know, advantages played off the boards that you wouldn't think, mm -hmm. you know, be, you know, the ball all of a sudden was at someone else's feet. So, and it brought you so close to the players in the indoor game that, that you had to, you, you had to have a relationship with them. And mm -hmm. you, you saw the same players, a six-team league in the, in the early years. Right. So, and I was refereeing every weekend. So, you, you know, you knew the players by their first name. And, and uh, they know you by a lot of other names, but 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 uh, you know. If so I guess I was a player manager, but not to the point where I sacrificed the laws of the game. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and when you're introduced often on Fox Sports, they talk about you being a former FIFA match commissioner. I, they, I, sometimes I wish they would explain more about what that is because I don't know how many fans out there actually know what a what a match commissioner is. Yeah, um, I tell you what. Um, even when I, I was working for MLS uh, in the referee department, and um, Ivan Gazidis, who's now with Arsenal, was my immediate direct report, and he came and said, um, "U.S. Soccer has received a notice from Concacaf that they're going to run a match commissioner's course in uh, Trinidad and Tobago at the so-called Center of Excellence, and they would like to send." Um, um, one or more persons from the league. So I raised my hand, as did Nelson Rodriguez, and we both went down and took the course. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting course because what the, the match commissioner at the end of the day is FIFA's representative uh, in charge of the integrity of the match. Mm -hmm. So it's to, it's to you run the technical meeting, you know, where you decide what uniform colors are being worn, uh, you know, and you discuss whatever rules, regulations, where the warm-up areas. You go to the team's practices to make sure they get their one-hour uh, practice walkthrough at the stadium. Um, you get, make sure the game starts on time. You make sure the referees are sequestered. Uh, and then not approached and no gifts are exchanged. And, and then at the end of the day, you write uh, a report. And you, back in the early days, you faxed it. And it was like 17 pages huh. of a uh, checklist. Really? Uh, yeah, and it took forever. And some of the stadiums didn't have a fax machine. You had to do it at the hotel. <laughs> um, we were talking, you know, CONCACAF. My first assignment was trinidad tobago at dominican republic and 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 you know you you have this meeting and this, everything's going okay, okay the ambulance is there and it's a dedicated ambulance but then they don't tell you that if there's an accident outside and the ambulance leaves there's not a second ambulance oh, and, and and uh so my first experience was a player getting hurt and not having an ambulance there and it was you know they they took him on a pickup truck Unreal. and it was not very good for me i don't know how i survived as a match commissioner oh, really? for for not 
ensuring that a second ambulance was available huh. immediately. Wow. Yeah. Um, I know we're jumping around in time here, but there's various things popping up in my head. I, I realize this came a little after your 1990 World Cup experience with the U.S. national team. So, um, And also, we should not ignore here, in 1989, the year before that, you were an assistant coach on a U.S. five-a-side team that won a bronze medal at the FIFA World Championship that had Tab Ramos and Peter Vermees on it, right? Yeah. Not only Tab Ramos, Peter Vermees, Bruce Murray, Mike Windishman, wow. Eric Eichmann. Uh, we just had a reunion, uh, kind of. Brent Goulet, uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy Gabara. Um, some of the players became the foundation of the 90 team mm-hmm. that went to Italy, and, and some of them are still involved in soccer today. Um, it was a great experience. John Kowalski, who... Uh, was my assistant coach at New Haven and who I recruited as a high school player to come to New Haven. Um, was very successful indoors with the Pittsburgh Spirit. So he got the job as the five-a-side coach. And we we kind of revolutionized five-a-side because we were substituting on the fly, which they, they hadn't been done. And we even changed goalkeepers on a penalty kick situation, which no one had ever seen before. Because we had Louis Van Hall. Yeah. No, well, no, actually, <laughs> actually, it was in Holland. The tournament was in Holland, and really? Franz Hook. By that time, I knew him. He was working my camps, uh-huh. so I had him as a backup assistant coach, on a, you know, unpaid right. assistant coach, and working out. So, <laughs> so AJ Lakowiecki was our goalkeeper, and he was kind of s- small and and slight of uh, frame. And uh, in our first game, uh, we tied 1-1, and the, their goal, the op- opposition goal, uh, was a penalty that, mm-hmm. you know, he couldn't save. So I said, we got to put in, on a, a next penalty kick, we substitute AJ, we put in Dave Vinoli, much nice. bigger. <laughs> he, he covered practically whole, the whole goal, and, and uh, you know, he, and, and he saved the penalty the next time, and uh, people went nuts. Uh, it was really good. That's great. I mean, yeah. in... in- uh, five aside, is it basically futsal? Yeah, it's, it became futsal. Okay. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the rules, you know, the, at first it was uh, running time, and now mm-hmm. they've got stop time. They've changed a lot of the rules. They, they, they're much more strict with uh, slide tackles and okay. things of that nature. But basically it's futsal. it was futsal. And so that was 89, but at the same time you're going through World Cup qualifying with the U.S men's senior men's national team which hasn't qualified since the 1950 world cup what was your role on that team well uh, actually uh from from the uh five-a-side world cup which we did very well with the bronze medal Mm -hmm. uh then i went right to be assistant coach to bob gansler and we we had uh qualified in a group with el salvador and costa rica and, and uh uh, Honduras and we, you know, to qualify for the world cup. And I was his assistant coach. Uh, it was, and it was just Bob and I, mm-hmm. so I wasn't only just the goalkeeper, uh, coach at that time, but you know, was, was the assistant coach. And we managed to, uh, qualify on the last day of qualifying with that magic game in Trinidad that everybody calls the, you know, Paul Calajuri wonder goal game. Yeah. And I remember sitting on the bench and, and, and uh, on the end of the field where that goal was scored. And as soon as Paul hit it, uh, I, I jumped up and yelled, trouble. And, and uh, because I knew the sun was in the goalkeeper's eyes uh-huh. and the wind was, 
and the wind was behind him, it going to hold up the ball. So everybody, you know, that ball went over the goalkeeper's head, but bounced before it hit the net. Mm-hmm. So that's how it had like such a parabolic uh, yeah. curve to it. Huh. So, 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 but I knew it from my goalkeeper experience that he was going to have trouble with it, just the way huh. Paul hit it. And sure enough, that became the winning goal. But, but, but really, and one of the things, if you ask about memorable moments, after the game, um, Sunil Galati, who had just begun his U.S. soccer career, came into the locker room and you know sh- shook my hand uh, and said thank you, and and it really was not only it was because Tony Miola got four straight shutouts in the last four qualifying games, mm-hmm. and, and it, without that those if you look at the scores zero zero and all and then one zero in Trinidad without those his shutouts we don't qualify right. The World Cup itself in Italy, what stood out to you from that experience? <laughs> you know, we were in a tough group, uh, Czechoslovakia, Italy in Italy, Austria, who at that time had a very strong team. And in the analyzation of that group, uh, we felt if we were going to get any points at all, we we're going to get them from Czechoslovakia. Mm. Uh, and they had... Um, um, you got to remember it's 1990 and it's about the time the Iron Curtain is, you know, there's, there's revolution and solidarity and, and all of that. So there was real dissension in the uh, Czech camp between the players who were still playing in Czechoslovakia and the ones that already had gotten out and, and uh, were playing in Italy and other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did not win a single warm-up game after they qualified. They had several in Europe. They didn't win any. Mm. Austria won all of them, including beating Holland in Holland. Mm. So, and, and, you know, of course, we didn't expect to, to, to beat Italy in, in Rome. So, so we played uh, an, an open game um, against uh, Czechoslovakia, and we got hammered 5-1, uh, to one and, and uh, Tony saved even a penalty. So it could have been greater. Mm. Um, and obviously we had to change um, our approach. The next game was against Italy and Rome. We had to go by bus because we were stationed outside of Florence. So, and I mean, that was an experience in itself because every little town we passed, the Italian community would come out. Somehow they found out when the bus was coming. Uh, there was a helicopter above and We'd get to an intersection, and the police would get out of their cars with machine guns and look around before we could cross the intersection. But all the people were going, showing two hands and ten fingers, going, ten, ten, because they were going to beat us ten-nothing. Oh, man. Yeah. That didn't happen that way. No, and we, i tell you what, uh, we, we, we lost the game 1-0, and there's a magic moment in the game where Bruce Murray has a free kick, and it dips right before uh, Walter Zanga. Um, and uh, he makes the save, and the rebound comes out to Vermes, mm-hmm. and he shoots him and hits him in the rear end. And uh, we could have had a tie there that would have uh, would have kept us still alive against Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Austria, we played a reasonable game. We lost 2-1. Yeah, I, I think people in many ways remember that World Cup as just that's what got the ball rolling again sort of in the modern era by qualifying. Mm-hmm. But I remember as a kid, that was the first World Cup I watched. And I remember watching the Italy game and and just being pretty proud that like this U.S. team of really young guys that didn't have much international experience mm-hmm. didn't get the doors blown off them right. by this great team. You know, by the by the middle of the game, the uh, 
uh, 50, 60,000 Italian fans were beginning to cheer for us. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, they, they were uh, not happy with their own team's performance. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience for us. So I realize I'm skipping a lot of years here, but in, in correct me and, and at, feel free to add something if I am missing something really important here. But I, I do want to take some time to talk about uh, what you do with Fox Sports because my sense is that you've had this amazing career where you've been in, involved in so many different things, but that once you started doing television – that you might get recognized more now than you used to in the past. And um, and I'm just also curious to get a sense of how you approach, how you got this job and how you approach how you do it. Well, let's start with how I got the job. Okay. <laughs> so working for MLS mm-hmm. in the Department of Officiating Services, where I, I kind of coordinated the referee programs of both Canada and U.S. with MLS. Mm-hmm. So I was the customer mls is the customer of their referee departments at the mm-hmm. time and i was in charge of customer services gotcha. uh, so and also the disciplinary committee but a gentleman by the name of michael cohen uh ran the uh broadcast department at mls and every year he did a broadcast seminar for all of the uh, uh play-by-play and color commentators for all of the clubs and and the national broadcast teams and they would come to Florida or Vegas or some, you know, attractive place. And there'd be a seminar. And Michael would always ask me, would I be able to do um, a a one-hour session uh, on the rules and any changes and interpretation and the role of the disciplinary committee? And I would, uh, and he would make me do it after lunch uh, (laughs) because that's when everybody is still sleeping. He said the food puts them to sleep. and, And my job was to wake them up. So I would bring, you know, videotapes of outrageous tackles and stuff that happened at MLS and uh, bring a whistle and flags. And, you know, one time I had Thomas Rangan standing in front of the group. Uh, you know, I said, Thomas, show me the difference between an offside flag and a foul flag. And, you know, yeah. it was – coaches <laughs> don't know that. So so we, we had a lot of fun. And, uh, and so I did that, you know, almost every year for, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Mm. So when Michael – when Fox – uh, began the sport networks Fox FS1 and FS2. Um, Michael became a consultant for them uh, because of his experience in MLS, and um, and Fox had already had uh, the NFL, and of course they had Mike Pereira, mm-hmm. who uh, everybody knows, uh, who does the rule interpretations for football, and they said, well, we need somebody to do something like that for soccer. And Michael said to the people at Fox, well, I have your guy. And, and so I got, uh, I um, had a screen test. Yeah? Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, so they, it was right after one of their broadcasts, Rob Stone was at the desk, and they brought me in and sat me at the desk and showed me video clips that I had not seen before. And I had to analyze on the fly those clips. And uh, they said, thank you very much. Uh, and then maybe two months went by before I, before I got a phone call and said, you, you have the job. And hmm. their explanation to me was that um, uh, they thought that the way I handled it versus the way others handled it, because they did interview quite a few others, was that uh, my teaching background 
uh, at the uni- from the university that that's really what they wanted, someone who would not only, you know, wouldn't just criticize the rule or the interpretation or the referee, but actually explain it and teach it. Uh, you know, to the people who are watching soccer and, and, and to do it in a way not to, to insult them like they, you know, that because soccer's been around now a long time in the country. You can't talk down to the fans. You, you, you got to, you know, they're, they're sophisticated fans. So, so uh, that's how I got the job. Okay. And, and how do you approach doing that job? Like, what's it like during a game when you're working it? Well, believe it or not, you know, at the end of a game, I'm exhausted. Uh, because the, I'm, I'm, I'm staring at it, uh, and, and, you know, I've got my rule books at my side, and everything is underlined, and, and, you know, if, if I do get a chance to speak about anything that happens, you know, you have to use the right choice of words, you, and you, you can't make a mistake, uh, uh, because you're expected to be you know, right 100% right. of the time. So there's pressure, uh, and it's pressure when I'm in the studio at L, uh, in L.A., but what a lot of people don't know is that um, I have a studio at home, as mm-hmm. do you, in mm-hmm. fact, Grant. Um, and and so I'm watching the game, and I have my computer, and I'm constantly emailing the producers, and and you know they they're giving whatever I say if they think it's appropriate to the talent, and saying, Dr. Joe says, uh, and and they often use it. Without without saying we heard from Dr. Joe, so I take you know I'm I'm happy about that. I'm not looking for that right. credit because I'm performing a service, and sometimes they say, oh well, Dr. Joe said, and sometimes they I get a phone call, get in front of the camera, we need you right away. So you know, like you, I I watch the game in a shirt and tie in my pajama bottoms. <laughs> Well, I, I think it really adds something to the broadcast, and I think, I mean, am I right in thinking that soccer, maybe even more than the NFL or other sports, has a need for something like this? Well, everything is open to interpretation in soccer, you know, and it's it's uh, it's a very difficult game to referee. It's gotten very fast and very... Uh, physical at times, and there's players who are attempting to dupe the referee in, in situations, simulation, and others. Uh, and it's all a question of angles. Um, and so for years, the game has been refereed by one gentleman or lady with a whistle and two assistants with a flag. And, and now people are understanding that that's not enough. So UEFA, for example, a couple of years ago, put two more referees involved in the game on the end line and and they, they, they at first were, their job was only to be like a goal judge because we've had incidences of the ball hitting the crossbar coming down and you couldn't tell with the naked eye if it's a goal or not. And, and uh, even they couldn't do the mm-hmm. goal judging properly, even though they were properly positioned. So that, that kind of developed into they became assistant referees uh, patrolling the penalty area at each end. And, and even that's not enough. Uh, and so now we've got video assistant referee coming out, and and uh, they've been testing it in several countries, including MLS here, uh, Germany, Italy, um, and it's been a um, <laughs> Confederations Cup. Right. It's 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 been not as easy as it looks, even with video assistant referee. So and now they're saying it's almost 100% sure video assistant referee will be used in this World Cup. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of happy about that because it just gives a lot more talking points for, uh, mm-hmm. for everyone involved because it's still a human being uh, looking at a, a play and, and having an opinion. 
you spent so much time. This is so much a part of your career, uh, the idea of you know, refereeing. Uh, if you could make any changes to the sport in terms of how it's refereed, officiated, what would they be? Well, right away, um, without giving a lot of thought to it, I, I, I know soccer's got a problem with concussions. Mm-hmm. And FIFA has put in a concussion protocol where they, the referee now doesn't uh, restart play uh, for as long as three minutes to, to deal with a potential head injury that might be a concussion. But I, I would allow a substitution on that uh, that doesn't count when that happens. Uh, allow a substitution where the player who's got the head injury could be properly um, uh, analyzed as to whether he or she has a concussion, and that could take a half hour mm-hmm. uh, before a med- proper medical uh, personnel say, okay, you can or cannot go back in the game. And and if they say that person can go back in the game and the coach wants to, then okay, and that the substitute, you know, they haven't been playing with 10, they'd be playing with 11, and that player would – the other one would come out, and that wouldn't count as a substitution. Mm-hmm. I think that would have really help the whole concussion protocol mm-hmm. uh, um, scene. And the other thing is with overtime, uh, and and you know they've now in March there'll be a meeting, uh, IFAB meeting, uh, where they will discuss whether to make it a permanent rule change, uh, fourth substitution in overtime, mm-hmm. and I think that's even not enough. Uh, mm. uh, the you've all 23 players on a roster now dress. It's not like you only in the past you can only dress 16 and everybody the others were in the stands. Uh, they're all on the bench. And, and the true, in my mind, the true strength of a soccer nation is in the numbers of quality players they have. So if you have 23 dressed and you're going into a 30-minute overtime period, why shouldn't they all play? Why can't, mm-hmm. why? Yeah. Not that it's, you know, re, not re-entry, go in, go out. But so let them all play, and let's see what the true uh, strength of your uh, soccer is in the country. Interesting. One thing I have to ask during this is I've gotten so used to calling you Dr. Joe, and that's what everyone calls you on television. Where does the doctor come from? Because I was in education, and uh, if you wanted to achieve tenure at a university, you, you had to go for an advanced degree. So, so uh, I went for... First, uh, as an experiment, out to Utah, where they were uh, had a major called uh, Leisure Studies slash Recreation. And I went uh, summer of 71, summer of 72, and then a nine-month residency and transferred 26 points also from NYU and got a, a Ph.D. in Leisure Studies. So uh-huh. that's where the doctor comes uh, from. And interestingly enough, my dissertation was uh, called... Recreation in Retirement Villages, so and that's in 1973, and and I I toured ten retirement villages in the Southwest and analyzed their programs against the research against uh, senility and successful huh. aging, and it was way ahead of its time. It got published in uh, like uh, Golden Years magazine and wow. Se- Senior Living magazine, and then when I got back to the university, at the athletic director. Uh, resigned and uh since i was the only one in the department with a phd they asked me um uh, to be interim and then i got the job and i never used that degree in in, huh. the, in the field that it, uh, it that it was wow um but uh, that's where the dr joe came and and i have to say that um rob stone 
um, who we all know as the host of soccer on Fox. I mean, he perpetuated that uh, character with uh, with some of his uh, doctor in the house and and other kinds of things, and and I like it. So so uh, you know, it's it's uh, he, he's made fun of it, and mm-hmm. and but it's been good fun, and I enjoy it. Um, one other thing I just wanted to see if you're aware of, you've gotten so popular, you have a parody account on Twitter called Faux Dr. Joe. You have a real account as well, I should add. Yes. Um, but this, it's a, I think an affectionate parody account on Twitter. That, At times. <laughs> that seems to have a, uh, an interest in Cuddy Sark for some reason. And, and it's, and I don't drink scotch. <laughs> so, but, but I don't know who it is. Uh, and, and, uh. There are times I say, you know, I hope people understand that what that wasn't me. Yeah. You know, but it's for the most part been respectful. Yeah. Um, and I, I have my suspicions that it's somebody at Fox, but uh, but I don't know. This is a sign that you made it, I think, when you have parody accounts yeah, on I Twitter. Um, now, in Russia for Fox, for the World Cup, what exactly will you be doing and how many games will you be working? <laughs> I think I'll work them all. Um, and, and that's going to be very unique because in the group stage, there are some days with three games and some days with four games. Right. So, And I'm telling you, one game is a challenge. So it's going to be very interesting. But if something happens with VAR or otherwise in the fourth game of the day, I'm sure that uh, if an explanation is needed, they're going to call on me. So I'm going to be watching all the games. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's going to be uh, an impressive work output especially uh, in the early in the early rounds yeah um we're finishing up here i appreciate you taking this much time this has been a fun conversation thank you um but we're actually recording this in orlando um and you're being inducted into the national soccer hall of fame and your wife barbara's here yes your family yes. is here how many family members are here well i have uh between family and friends uh, more than 60 uh, the Federation wouldn't give me another table. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, not all of them have been invited. So, <laughs> so I don't know where they're coming from. Uh, you know, but they're coming from Arizona, Chicago, Milwaukee. Um, you know, and, they're, and what's really cool is uh, I've got a high school teammate, a college teammate, college coaches uh, from both universities that I've been associated with. People from the referee community, uh, Michael Cohn will be here, for, you know, who got me the job at Fox and other other folks. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, and the, the really fun part is um, I'm being inducted as a builder, mm-hmm. um, I guess, because of the many roles that I played that you've explained. Uh, and I went to Brooklyn Tech, uh, which is noted for putting out engineers and, and architects and if I learned anything at Brooklyn Tech, the one lesson I learned is that no way did I want to be an engineer. <laughs> so that's probably how else I got into soccer because uh, sometimes uh, there's such a thing as a successful failure. Well, uh, if this is a successful failure, I would put the emphasis on the successful. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Joe Magnick, for joining me. Congratulations on your entry into the Hall of Fame. You've touched a lot of people in this sport, and I'm glad people are hearing your story. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, and I appreciate everything you do for soccer in America. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Joe Macknick, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. 
please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcast. It really does help us if you do. And check out the 30-Minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available for free now on SI.com. Recent guests include Heath Pierce, Vaishali Bardwaj, Rob Stone, and Chris Ahrens. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.